0: Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The
1: habitat, the hunting, and of course, your favorite bird dogs.
2: In the uplands, we have a treasure unlike any other in the world. From vast golden prairies that stretch across the continent to quiet piney woods that make the world disappear. Every wild place holds a promise, a chance to escape, to reconnect, and to come alive. These lands are part of who we are, a gift from past generations of dedicated hunters and conservationists to all of us. Unfortunately, All across North America, our cherished uplands are disappearing. Millions of acres every year are converted away from grasslands to concrete jungles of urban sprawl or intensified agricultural lands. At Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, this massive habitat loss is why we kicked off our Call of the Uplands campaign to turn the tide for our habitat mission. Today's episode features an update about our Call of the Uplands campaign through the eyes of two buddies, two friends, two hunting buddies, two guys from Kansas. And uh, without further ado, I welcome Jordan Martinsich and Jim Melloncyfer to On the Wing podcast. Fellas, thanks for joining me appreciate it thank you for having me absolutely pleasure bob well so so jordan's the second voice you heard and jordan is the um pheasants forever and quail forever director of development i'm gonna have you go first um is it give us a little brief introduction of yourself um where you grew up you know where you went to school what what you do for the organization and then Transition us into you can introduce uh uh Jim and and pass the baton his way, but go ahead and start with your backstory, Jordan.
0: Sounds good, thanks, Bob. And this is a point of contention in my family. So, on one side of the family, you said my last name correctly when you said Martinsich, okay? On the other side of the family, and in my household, we say it Martin Cich. So you you said it properly as as far as the way it's spelled, but it's not spelled phonetically, and that's a long story. I
2: I think. How long have we worked together, and I didn't know that. Well, a decade. You've got this going for you, Bob. I was
0: fifteen, I think, before I learned how to properly say it, and we've been working together for fourteen years. So by this time next year, you'll have it.
2: (laughs) Well, I apologize.
0: Hey, no worries. Well, I grew up in the greater Kansas City area. That's where I still make my home. Went through uh, grade school and high school here and was introduced to the Uplands when I was about 13, 14 years old. Really fell in love with it. That spawned into uh, getting out into the doors on a fairly regular basis, hunting, fishing, chasing birds a lot in high school. And then went off to college and did the normal college thing out of college uh, was in the real estate profession here in kansas city for a number of years and woke up one day and thought as much as i like helping people make the biggest investment of their life do i really want to spend the rest of my life doing this and at the Mm -hmm. time i wasn't married wasn't in a serious relationship didn't have any kids and so i had a high degree of risk tolerance and decided i wanted to make a career change which eventually, after a winding road, led me to Pheasants Forever, where when I got a job as a regional representative for the organization in 2008, working with our chapter volunteers in Kansas, that was when I came on board as an employee. Prior to that, I'd been a volunteer for the local Johnson County chapter for about two years. And so I had some understanding of who the organization was, what the mission was, what we're trying to accomplish, But then, really, when I came on as an employee, I learned more about the organization, gained a deeper appreciation for it, and so that's how my journey led to Pheasants Forever. I have two pretty dogs, (laughs) as (laughs) Jim Millen Cipher likes to call them. In my in my household, we call them English setters. More on that later. Uh, But, you know, in this profession, as you know, Bob, especially with pheasants forever and quail forever, you get to meet and work with some of the best of the best. Mm. And Jim is one of those best of the best types of folks. We met, I think, in the summer of 2010, I believe, Jim might need to correct my memory, and I've think the first place that Jim and I actually met was in Topeka in the Secretary of Wildlife and Parks office. And that was when the Kansas Governor's Ringneck Classic was coming together under the leadership of then Governor Brownback. And I'll let Jim get into some of the more hairy details about his involvement in that. But over the years, we've become uh, fast friends, love to chase birds with each other all over the country. And He's one of those guys that will put boot leather on the ground all day long and continue to grind, even when things aren't going his way or his dog's way or going the rest of the group's way. So if you want somebody that's going to walk and walk and walk and walk and walk, (laughs) Jim's your man. And, uh, uh, you know, Jim have a little, Jim and I have a little bit of an age difference. He's a little bit more mature than I am. Uh, but that certainly hasn't stopped us from finding tons of stuff in common, having great laughs, and really becoming, you know, in my opinion, he's one of my closest friends. So with that, I'll turn it over to Jim Millen-Cypher for his introduction.
1: you're You're too kind. i I, I appreciate that. I, I will I will say that the the fact that our age is is a bit different um, is something that's that's not unusual for me most of my friends that I hunt with are quite a bit younger um, and it's, it's probably a result of the way that we hunt. Um, I do have some, some buddies that that are actually a little bit older than I am that hunt just as hard as I do. But um, Jordan and I have become good friends, mostly because um, although we have vastly different opinions of what good dog work means or what (laughs) what good dogs are, um, we, uh, we, we have, Blended well from a hunting standpoint. <laughs> I, I too came into to Upland hunting at about the same time as Jordan. My father was not a hunter. I grew up in the Denver metro area and my father was into the outdoors. We had a cabin up in the mountains and he did a lot of backpacking and fishing and hiking and so forth, but he wasn't a hunter. And it wasn't until um, I was a sophomore in high school that I actually got turned on to hunting by some some pretty close friends. The, the Musilli family were kind of my mentors into the hunting world. And uh, at, at 14, I, I started hunting. It's, it's a funny story. I got these guys involved in a goose hunt. I worked at a place where you could actually hunt geese. I worked at this golf course and I wasn't a hunter, but I got Gary and his brother Joe out there one day and they sh- they shot a bunch of geese on a Sunday. Tuesday, I was in hunter safety. Thursday, I got my hunter safety card. Friday, I talked my sister into buying me a, a Remington 870 shotgun at Kmart for 162 bucks, And uh, and I've never looked back. Um, that was, you know, almost, uh, well, almost 48, 49 years ago. So um, I love the outdoors. I love hunting. I, I, I lived in the Front Range of Colorado until I was about 48. My wife and I relocated. To Western Kansas at that point in time, I've been involved in the the restaurant and hospitality business, truck stops, hotels, and so forth. And so, Western Kansas was a was a perfect opportunity for me, both for a, a career standpoint for the for the last you know 10 or 15 years of my professional life. But it's also an ideal area if you're into the uplands and you're into hunting, and you want to, you want to be able to access mm-hmm. um, you know great pheasant, quail. Uh, prairie chicken, grouse hunting—you can get just about anywhere quickly. Um, so we relocated to western Kansas in in 2008, and it was shortly after that that I got involved in the in the Kansas Governor's Ringneck Classic. And and as Jordan mentioned, that's where we first met, and that's where the relationship began.
2: So I want to talk about the the Ringneck Classic because that's part of the story here. But um, ask you a couple of questions. The the age difference, you know, that's something that as Jordan's bringing it up, I'm like, well, that's sort of an awkward thing to bring up. But then, you know, the, the, the reality is Jim, and I got to hunt with you last year, I think it was in January. And you are a bit of an anomaly, not that you're old, but you are for a guy that, um, um, I'm guessing is in his, Mid '60s, thereabouts. Early '60s, Early '60s. Okay, that I mean, you you can walk with any 25 year old out there, and you know, all day long, up and down, and and that's that is sort of a um, unique trait that people that are hardcore upland bird hunters with their dogs, there's a component there that keeps you healthy, isn't there?
1: Well, and you know, it's, it's kind of twofold. I love the sport. I love the dogs. I love the activity. I'm a, I'm, I'm an old fry cook, right? I'm a food guy. I've been involved Mm. in restaurants since I was 12 years old. So it's just an extension of, of, of that, if you will. I mean, we eat wild game 95% of the time. So I love the activity and I love the dogs and I love the hunt, but I also, you know, think of it as a, as a way to stay young. My, Mm -hmm. my father, Um, had pretty bad arthritis and, and the last 10 or 15 years of his life were pretty miserable because he couldn't do the things he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's as much as a, 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 way to stay fit to ensure that I can continue doing it if nothing else. And, and, and frankly, I love it.
2: Yeah. I'm right there with you. I'm a type one diabetic, which means that, you know, I really have to maintain Um, or watch what I eat and stay fit for heart health. And, you know, not anything different than anybody else, but it's always top of mind. And what keeps me motivated to stay in good shape all year long is like, I got to be ready to, you know, run with the dogs come September, come October. And, and, you know, that brings it, bring me to the dogs. You know, Jordan was bantering early about pretty dogs. Which means you have ugly dogs.
1: I, I'm an I'm an ugly dog guy. I was <laughs> I was I was looking for for my first hunting dog in the early 90s, and uh, we were in in uh, Winter Park, Colorado. Uh, my wife and another couple and we came out of a a restaurant one December night, snowing, beautiful, you know, Christmas type scene, and I saw the ugliest dog I'd ever seen um, mm. right outside the restaurant. And I asked the guy, what the heck kind of dog is that? And it was a, it was a, a wire-haired griffon. And I started doing research about griffons and, and learned that wire hair, German wire hairs were probably a little bit more of an established breed. And uh, in two, I'm sorry, in 1994, I got my first wire hair and I've had, uh, well, I've got five now, six, um, including a retired dog. Um, so I, I had wire hairs when they weren't fashionable. Today, you see them all, <laughs> all over the place. But in the mid-90s, most people didn't know what they were. Um, mm-hmm. and, and frankly, they do well in our environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like short hairs and I like vishlas and some of the other pointing breeds. But um, Western Kansas can be brutal cold in December and January, whether it be wind chill or whether it be snow and so forth. So having a dog that that is a little bit more in tune to those kind of conditions, I think, is has been good. The flip side is it can be tough in in September, October, when you're hunting grouse. Mm-hmm. Um, a black a blackland long haired dog at that, that time of year is it can be pretty difficult. But uh, you just learn to carry a lot of water when you're hunting prairie grouse.
2: You carry a lot of water when you got six dogs too. Yeah, <laughs> that's true too. I've never hunted
1: more than four of them at a time. I've always had dogs that are that are rotating in and out because of of age or retirement level but uh yeah i've got four dogs that hunt today ranging from two to 14. so well even with four at tie time, it's not very hard to
0: keep track of them bob because all four of those dogs would be within 20 yards of mm-hmm. him in any given direction
1: i i think 20 yards is exaggerating a little bit my dogs tend to get out at 40 or 50 yards but they're sure as hell not three quarters of a mile away <laughs> The whole concept of of having to use technology and having a wristwatch or some type of app on your phone so you can know where the heck your dog is, I'm not interested in that. I I want to be able to see my dog and know what they're doing rather than looking at my wristwatch to find out that they're (laughs) 950 yards northwest and not moving. I I think that's directed at me, Bob, in my Garmin (laughs) wristwatch that I have on.
0: I'm not sure that's a fair assessment. I'm willing to take it though. Uh, I, even though I use the technology, I'm a firm believer in you should know where your dogs are at any given moment, but on the outside chance that you're hunting in Idaho for Colombian tailed grouse, like Jim and I were a few years ago, and your dog gets turned around and goes a different direction, the GPS come
1: can come in handy. <laughs> if your dogs just learn where you're at and come back to find you, you don't need that technology. I've never lost a dog. I hunted with a guy in North Dakota last year that talked about the fact that over the last 10 or 15 years he's lost like 10 dogs. Mm. And it was kind of mind-boggling the stories of of people losing dogs, but um I, I will uh, I, I will give it to Jordan. His dogs, when they get on a, a covey of wild quail, they they tend to hold point and allow you to get there. So um, I'll throw him that one bone. Ninety nine percent of the time, I'd rather have my dog in visual.
2: Uh, the Kansas Throwdown: English Setters versus Wire Hairs. Uh, exactly what I wanted to, the conversation to turn into. I will steer us back. It, you know, part of the um, part of the fun and the camaraderie is your obvious shared passion for the upland habitat that creates the birds, that creates dog stories. And that's the focus of this conversation. We're going to talk about kind of the Call of the Uplands campaign and how that brought you guys together um, around bird hunting and, and towards the organization's mission. Before I go there, um, give a shout out to... On X Maps, a national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Wildlife Habitat Conservation Mission, a sponsor of On the Wing podcast and special this week, August 22nd through August 26th, 2022, OnX is helping us bring you Build a Wildlife Area Week, celebrating Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's public land creation efforts. Special this week, if you make a donation of $50 or more to the Build a Wildlife Area campaign at PheasantsForever.org or QuailForever.org, a $50 donation or more will get you an Onyx Elite membership for the next year. It's worth $100 by itself, but if you make a $50 donation during Build a Wildlife Area week, you will get an Onyx Elite membership. So go to pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org, look up the Build a Wildlife Area campaign right on the homepage, and special this week, you can get that Onyx Elite membership. It is an unbelievable promotion, and thanks to Onyx for helping us out. All right, guys, (coughs) we've brought up the Kansas Governor's Ringneck Classic. A couple of times, um, Jim. I, I, it seems like you were at the very beginning of this concept. Is that accurate?
1: That that's correct. In in twenty ten, um, when so, when Governor Brownback was campaigning, or or then um, hoping to be governor, mm. Brownback was campaigning before the election. He made the commitment that if he were elected governor, that he would put more of an emphasis on on promoting hunting tourism in the state. So mm. after he won the election, uh, his offices reached out to a variety of communities in Northwest Kansas to see if anyone would be interested in, in starting the, the governor's hunt. It didn't have a name obviously at that point in time. Um, but yes, I was, uh, I was heavily involved in, in trying to promote tourism if you will, mm-hmm. in Western Kansas. Having restaurants and hotels and truck stops that I was involved with, obviously, um, that that uh, tourism component uh, for transient guest traffic in fall and winter is important. So I got involved in the uh, in the very beginning stages, and and now 12 years later, um, we'll have a hunt this November, and it'll be our 12th hunt.
2: And did you see that that uh, you know that investment? at least from a political perspective, to focus more on hunting and tourism. Was that noticed by voters in Kansas?
1: Um, I don't know if it had any impact on voters. Um, I, I really believe that, that that tourism and wildlife and habitat conservation is nonpartisan. Hmm. And you know we're now on our third governor during the 12 year history of the event um, and we've had had governors from both both of the parties, and and I respect what they've done and continue to do for the state. But I really believe that that um, that supporting hunting tourism, which was, was how the event originally started, was to to promote hunting tourism. Mm-hmm. The wildlife habitat conservation component, you know, evolved. Um, but really, I kind of think that they're nonpartisan, and I don't know that they had a significant impact. But I will tell you that, that we have quantifiable results that, that our efforts with the governor's hunt have helped support hunting tourism in the state,
2: hmm. and it's really had an impact on the community too. I mean, you've seen you you talked about tangible results. A- any statistics that you can throw out related to that?
1: Well, you know, you you it, it's tough to to quantify some of those things. But if you look at license sales if you look at out-of-state visitors um, all of those things have increased in the last 12 years we sell more out-of-state hunting licenses now than we did 12 years ago so you could make an argument that has to do with the growth of the sport but as we all know the sport might not be growing so the fact that we are seeing increased numbers in out-of-state licenses is, is is good i i will tell you that that being involved in hotels and restaurants and and selling fuel and candy and gum and cigarettes and so forth. It's had a, a, a direct impact on, on some of those types of sales. And frankly, the hunt itself, which is held the third weekend of November every year, um, generates anywhere from sixty to $70,000 for the local community each time the hunt is held. So there's some, some direct impact that's, that's out-of-state money um, or out-of-community money coming from the outside. So there's direct impact initially, but the, probably the, the most significant thing is, is the dollars that have been generated to raise that have gone on now to support wildlife and habitat conservation or getting new people involved in the shooting sports. When, when Sam originally proposed this concept, um, the idea was to promote hunting tourism, but we, we quickly found out that, that in order to get um, lasting sponsorship Um, and, and to create lasting credibility with this event that, that the sponsors really didn't, you know, care about how much we were pushing, hunting tourism in Western Kansas. Hmm. He wanted to know what we were doing to get new people involved in the sport, new hunters, new shooters, and what we were doing to ensure that there was good public access and an opportunity for folks to continue. And if, if you think about it, if there's, if there's not good public access, and there's not wild game to hunt, hunting tourism won't exist anyway. So mm-hmm. obviously they went hand in hand and, and that's really how our, our event has grown and evolved um, to being, um, after expenses, a hundred percent of our, our proceeds go to, to shooting, to go to um, supporting the shooting sports um, or supporting wildlife habitat and conservation.
0: From Bob, from kind of an outsider look at you know, I wasn't involved in this until, after it kind of already got rolling. Now, I think it initially started as a way for Governor Brownback to say, pheasant hunting is important to Kansas.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's really kind of the thing that got the momentum behind it. And then over time, it's, in my opinion, shifted from being Governor Brownback's vision to now it's the vision of people like Jim and Raylene Keller and the volunteers and the donors and the landowners who are all these people that have come together in that local community where the event is hosted now, Colby annually, and they've rallied around it. And now they have a vision for where they're taking this and the things that they want to see happen on the landscape. They they started the Northwest Kansas Conservation Foundation, which is where the money flows into, and then they allocate the funding out and when pheasants forever got involved in it initially it was well you know we probably need to have pheasants forever involved in it because they're the national pheasant organization and over time it's turned into this great collaborative partnership where the Ringnet classic is raising funds and then in turn donating them to pheasants forever or some of their other beneficiaries and then we're applying those funds to that priority landscape so Mm -hmm. in northwest kansas the Ringnet classic has supported a number of our build a wildlife area program projects one of those is a thousand acres in goodland or south of goodland in sherman county which added to about a 2500 acre habitat complex and But that's in a part of the state where public land holdings are not very significant. And then, in addition to that, more recently they've been supporting our Corners for Wildlife program, which is designed to enroll center irrigation pivot corners in good quality upland habitat and have those acres be open to public hunting. So they've really been not only emphasizing the need for public access in Northwest Kansas, but they're Financially supporting it with the hard-earned dollars that they raise,
2: and, and when folks hear that, they think, "Well, that's that's pretty cool that it's going towards a build a wildlife area project for land acquisition, or you know, the corners program." In a you know, I introduced this episode as kind of the call the uplands um, episode, an update. So explain it like you know, folks are trying to categorize this. How's this fit? how do how do these contributions that go to a land acquisition or go to um, corners how' does that fit in the overall campaign well,
0: that's a great question bob and you know this journey and partnership started long before call of the uplands was even within the the thought process for the organization but the last couple of years as we've rolled out the call of the uplands campaign which is designed to overcome the challenges facing the upland wildlife habitat tradition, the Ringneck Classic has increased their support in the face of a lot of adversity. You know, they've they've been in an area in Northwest Kansas where CRP acres have continued to decline, where access is declining as a result of that. So they're living it every day. they were already supporting the organization at a high level, but they have leveled it up and Hmm. they've advanced more support of build a wildlife area. They've advanced more support of corners. And most recently they're supporting our birds program. In addition to that, they've always been big supporters of education and outreach. And I think this is one of the kind of the neater things that's gone on over the years. So they have four, youth hunters that participate annually. And there's an essay contest for those kids to, to get invited to the hunt. And they have been providing those kids every single year with a Pheasants Forever lifetime membership. So whether or not this kid that comes to the hunt ever gets into hunting, they're always gonna have that as a fond memory. I went to that hunt, I get my Pheasants Forever membership for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. To circle back to your question about the call of the uplands, you know, the vision for that is really to accelerate our mission delivery. Mm-hmm. So, over the years we've impacted about 22 million acres of wildlife habitat to date as an organization, and coming up to when we started the campaign, we'd had about a million participants in our education and outreach programs. And organizationally, we saw the need for us to do more. So, for us to continue to grow our impact to create a rally cry for the uplands and that's what call of the uplands is all about so it's a way for someone who has been engaged in the organization or loves the uplands to say you know what this is the time for me to do more i think i can do more i can volunteer the ring net classic as an example we can give more during the call of the uplands mm. and luckily because we have so many people that are passionate and generous it's been going well Mm -hmm. and it's come at a time where we've needed it more than ever especially with what's going on with crp and the pressures being placed on that you know there's pretty cool stuff happening in washington dc right now as a result of a lot of hard work and energy some of which was created by call of the uplands and then organizationally, we're advancing a lot of new and innovative solutions. So, you know, as far as where we are right now in in the mission delivery of, of that campaign and striving towards our 9 million acres, I can say that we're doing really well, mm-hmm. but we still have a, a good ways to go before we get this across the finish line. And in a lot of ways, this is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. So we've changed the way we're doing business. We're trying to do more than we ever have. And that's really what we need to strive to do as we progress into the future and we need great partners and leaders like jim millen cypher to participate in it and you know in addition to what the ring classic is doing jim's also a personal supporter of pheasants forever and quail forever he's a life member he's been an active quail forever member for a really long time and when he gets the opportunity he tells people about the organization, what it means to him, and how we're making a difference for the uplands, not only in Northwest Kansas, but across the country.
2: Here, go ahead, Jeff.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just want to add one thing that I, that I think is important to acknowledge. Um, first of all, I, I appreciate the, the nice comments, especially since most of the stuff Jordan says is derogatory in nature <laughs> We, we couldn't host this hunt in Colby now. This will be the sixth year it's in Colby. Uh, the first five years it, it rotated amongst other communities, but this will be the sixth year it's in Colby. But we couldn't host this event if it weren't for um, tremendous support from our landowners, hmm. tremendous support from volunteers, guys. You know, we, have, we have 15, 16 teams of six hunters every year um that go out so we're talking 85 to 90 95 hunters that go out you couldn't do that if it weren't for the for the support of the local chapter the local fessus forever chapter if it weren't for the landowners that commit the land and if it weren't for the volunteers so so while i appreciate the 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 nice words from jordan um i'm just a teeny part of this process Mm. um it's a it's a significant undertaking and and, and this this organization has evolved too. when When Governor Brownback first presented the idea, the, the intent was that you would promote hunting tourism. and if you happened to raise a little bit of money, then you know you could do something for humanities or something for the local community. So for the first four or five years, we didn't raise that much money. We, we got some good um, acknowledgement from from folks in the in the community and, and people that came here to hunt. But we were doing some some things in the, the local community with the funds that we raised that really weren't that significant towards towards wildlife habitat and conservation. So shortly shortly after our hunt in 2015, we kind of regrouped. Um, we had some new board members. We met with the governor, and, and and Sam said, "Do what you want. You guys have been so successful. You've my expectations." If you want this thing to evolve, then, then, then I have full trace of trust and confidence in you. So I'll read you the vision of the organization today. Um, support wildlife and habitat conservation, the development of public hunting, outdoor youth opportunities, and new hunters and shooters. Hmm. So that's who we are. We're about, we're about supporting wildlife habitat conservation. We're about getting new people involved in the sport, whether they're, whether they're young, um, you know, youth, whether they're, they're minorities, women, the, the intent is to get new people involved in the sport and then do our best to help ensure that there's good public access. Mm-hmm. That's the intent of the organization and, and so when you look at Pleasants Forever and Quail Forever and its mission and vision, they really go hand in hand. So in, in 2016, um, we just we evolved to where 100% of our after, after expense proceeds goes strictly to that vision and mission. And, and we don't just work with pheasants Forever. This last you know six or eight months, we've donated almost $20,000 to youth sporting teams, youth shooting teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty big deal here in the state of Kansas now. So we, we do those types of grants. We just signed up an agreement with the Nature's Conservancy um, to, uh, to help fund a new program that they're starting in partnership with Pheasants and Quail Forever. But it's called a grassland stronghold, and it's really similar to some of the other established programs. But um, the, the, the intent is to support those conservation efforts, regardless of who is involved. But clearly Pheasants Forever um, is, our, is our number one partner because we're a pheasant hunt, we're an upland hunt, and that's mm-hmm. what Pheasants Forever is.
2: Jim, Jordan mentioned, you know, so you, you've kind of spearheaded the Ringneck Classic and now, you know, there's a lot of, not all the dollars, but a lot of dollars go to the different aspects of the mission of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, whether that's corners or land acquisition. And at the same time, you've also left um, some personal gifts um, for the organization is through your own personal philanthropy. Is there a... A moment in time or an event or something that happened in the relationship with you and the organization where you um, felt that commitment to the cause that sort of made you want to do something more than normal?
1: Um, I, you know, I don't know what more than normal means. Um, I, I was blessed to have great parents. And, and one of the things that my parents instilled in me was, was you, know, you have time, you have talent, and you have money. And you need to give back. Hmm. And so um, whether, it's, whether it's allocating some of, of our charitable um, dollars that we have to Pheasants Forever and to other organizations, you know, whether it be you know, the college that I graduated from, mm-hmm. Uh, the denver rescue mission is near and dear to my heart um for the work that they do but uh you know i i am a pheasant hunter i'm an upland bird hunter um i, I got introduced to this in, in burlington colorado in december of, of 1994 or excuse me 1974. um and you know the the, the first time you're, you're walking a They called it shatter cane. I've I've since learned that it has different terminology. But to (laughs) have a cackling rooster get up at your feet when you're 14, 15 years old Hmm. um, impacted me, and and it's it's like it happened yesterday. Hmm. So I, I want. I don't have any fear. I'm 62 years old. I'm I'm fortunate and blessed that I will have as much opportunity to hunt. As long as I'm physically able to, mm-hmm. I, I know enough people. I've made enough contacts. I have enough friends. I'm going to have the opportunity to, to hunt as much as I want to for the rest of my life. If I were 25 years old, I'd be scared to death. Mm. If I were 25 years old and have the passion that I have to do what I do, I'd be scared to death about about the opportunity um, ahead. Um, if we don't, if we don't do something to to increase the opportunity from a public standpoint public access if we don't do something to ensure that the wildlife is there you know, jordan's got a son on um, what nine ten years old jordan Ten. Ten. if i had a ten-year-old kid i there's no way that his son is going to have the opportunities that jordan has today Unless something drastic changes in this environment, so that's what that's what impacts me. Um, I, I love the opportunity. I love sharing the opportunity. You know, I, I get two or three calls. More than that, I'll bet I get eight or ten calls a year um, from people that that are looking for prairie chickens or mm. sage grouse or ptarmigan, something that's that's you know a little unusual. So people from the East Coast will have a bucket list. And they want to come out and shoot shoot uh, prairie chickens or you know white tail ptarmigan in the mountains of colorado so I've, I've i've i'm old enough that i've had the opportunity to do those things and i i enjoy helping people i maybe never met them until they contact me but mm-hmm. if, if i have the opportunity i'll take them out and help them you know hopefully become successful at least introduce them to something else i think that's important but but ultimately i guess the answer to your question is um, my, my parents instilled it in, in, in myself and my sister when we were young growing up that you got to give back and this is really the only way that I know how. Huh. Jim, you, you said something there a couple of
0: different ways that struck me as interesting. So, you know, you said give of time, talent and treasure, a value set that your parents instilled in you. I think a lot of people are familiar with that concept of time, talent, treasure. But then, when you got to talking about your generosity with taking people to into the outdoors, I think that's an extension of that. So you're giving your time to that individual. You're giving your talent, which you know you're a tremendous bird hunter. You know lots about the sport. You know, even helping people learn how to become better at cooking the the game that they harvest. And then, in a lot of ways, you're giving your treasure. Your treasure is these hunting spots, these relationships and your willingness to take others who are interested in it out and put them in a position to be successful. I think that's, you know, something that a lot of folks should think about is as we progress towards hunting season. You know, there are a lot of ways to give. One way to give is to take somebody out into the field who doesn't really know that much about it and help them get excited about it. And the more people that we get excited about it, the more relevant it's gonna be. And hopefully that puts us all collectively in a position when my son's 25, he's not scared to death that he's not gonna be able to have a place to hunt. And I just feel like a lot of us in the sport that have been around it for a while, take that time, talent and treasure a little bit for granted and that we could be more generous with
1: it. Yeah. it's it's. You know, it's interesting. I I didn't understand. I grew up in the front range of Colorado City, um, hunted a lot, but but I didn't live in this type of environment until about 15 years ago when we relocated to Western Kansas. And I didn't understand the, the proprietary nature of a lot of people um in in these types of environments and it's the same i mean i happen to live in western kansas but it was it's it's the same when you're when you're down in in in, uh the public lands of of arizona hunting um the desert quail Mm -hmm. Um, people are secretive about about spots and 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 it's tougher to be secretive today with social media but i have a different i have a different take on it i hate looking at at facebook or any of the other um you know systems and and seeing people or reading people talk about the fact that you know they drove 24 hours to kansas and they hunted for four days on on uh walking lands and they saw three birds and then they drove you know 24 hours back home that that's like you know it, it pains me to see that i'm not suggesting that that i want people to get the opportunity to shoot a, a limit of birds every day. And also, you know, are they true hunters, right? I'll walk 10 miles in a day to get two or three points at a wild rooster. Um, and, and to me, that's a, that's an amazing, you know, a, a wonderful day if that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. And during the drought, you know, I started hunting prairie chicken in, the, in 2014 or 2015, because if I'm gonna walk 15 miles a day and get one opportunity, I might as well do it for an iconic bird like a prairie chicken right rather than than a rooster pheasant so i want people to have a a a successful opportunity and i will you know i won't share specific you know pins on on i have on x just they're they're a great sponsor of your
2: show (laughs) i I appreciate the
1: technology i I have very few people that i share pins with i've got Mm -hmm. some that i share pins with but you know if if somebody were to call me tomorrow and say, Hey, we're coming to Kansas. What, where should I go? You know, my, my stead answer is, is, you know, between Hoxie and, and Webster reservoir along the Solomon river, 10 or 15 miles north or south, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of acres of walking land. You have the opportunity to see chickens, quail or pheasants. You're going to have to hunt. You're going to have to hunt hard, but that's where I steer them to go. And frankly, 75 80 percent of the hunting i do is in areas like that Mm -hmm. i have enough i have enough friends and family and colleagues that i'll get a hunt private land you know maybe once out of every four or five times that i hunt but the other the other four or five you know the other five times four times that i hunt it's on public access and frankly i save i save my my Mm -hmm. um private land for when people come out here that I want them to have a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. If I'm hunting by myself, um, or if, if Jordan's just out 90% of the time, we're just going out to, to walk in land and, and, and putting down the time.
2: Mm-hmm. You, you've brought up, um, ptarmigan in Colorado, desert quail in, in Arizona. I know you've hunted the grouse slam in Wyoming. Um, Bob White quail in, in across southern Kansas as well. Um, you, you've had the opportunity to see a lot of different places and hunt a lot of different birds. Um, what, what's still left on on your upland adventure? what do you uh, what's on your bucket list?
1: Uh, mountain quail Mountain quail will top off you know my quail in you know, my career at quail slam. They, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe longer, the biologists decided to, to split um, bluegrouse. I, gr- I grew up in the mountains, you know, Colorado, and we hunted bluegrouse. Well, now they're called dusky. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the, the Pacific um, mountain areas of California, um, they're called sooty. So yep. I need to shoot I need to shoot um, sooty grouse. I need to shoot mountain quail. I've never been to Alaska, so I've, I've shot whitetail ptarmigan in Colorado, hmm. but I've never shot willow or rock ptarmigan. Okay. Um, spruce grouse. Those, hmm. those would be the birds that I've still yet to harvest, and that, that probably, probably will take care of my, my upland birds. And I'm not a huge waterfowl guy. I, I, I like to walk a lot, so upland birds are what I do.
2: It's pretty amazing when you think about, you know, from the tundras of Alaska to, you know, the mountains of Oregon for mountain quail, the sage, sagebrush sea, where sage grouse liver, the western Kansas area where you, you find chickens and pheasants and quail, just dramatic land, or drive down to Arizona in the desert, the, just a dramatic change in landscapes where, where these birds live and where we love to follow our dogs. When you go to all these places, do you drive and bring your own dogs?
1: I do. I've got yeah. a I've got a box on the back of my pickup that I can haul four or five dogs, mm. um, and you know, pretty much I'm able to bring all of my gear. Um, I there were three of us that that did a 13 day trip a couple of years ago. Uh, we were supposed to go to California to hunt mountain quail, and as we're um, literally getting ready to leave for California. We had we'd hunted uh sharptail in in Eastern Wyoming, but we're getting up to in, in Cheyenne that morning, we're, we're headed towards California and I get a phone call from my buddy in Sacramento area that says they've just shut down all the forests. Mm. And that was during the fires. Mm-hmm. So we ended up improvising and we went back into nebraska and hunted prairie chicken near imperial and then we ended up over by alpine wyoming and hunted rough grouse and and blue grouse and then we over by saratoga and hunted sage grouse so we ended up shooting five different grouse species over Mm. 13 days but there were three of us that were in my truck for 13 days with uh five dogs and uh and and did pretty well so Mm. yeah i i'm i'm not big on on flying with dogs i've never i've never hunted with a dog on off of an airplane. I've never traveled mm-hmm. that way. I've carried my gun and, and, and flown places and hunted, but, um, mm-hmm. but now I hunt with my dogs and so yeah, I drive. And, and the, the beauty of, of Kansas, Western Kansas, is I can get up to Dickinson, North Dakota in 11 hours. Um, I can hunt Southern New Mexico in a day and then go down into Senoida or Patagonia and be down there for desert quail in another half day I can get to Idaho, Jordan and I um, hunted Idaho uh, for about six days, a couple of years ago or four or five years ago. So I can get to Wyoming or Colorado or Idaho or Oregon, or the Dakotas, I can get into Nebraska for about an hour and 15 minutes from my house. So I, Where we're at, I can get to, to a variety of places. Texas, we've hunted, Jordan and I hunted Texas, the quail um, down near the Mexican border. Mm. That's a little bit longer of a trip, a day and a half drive.
2: But,
0: mm. um, That's too much time in the car with Jim, by the way.
2: <laughs> you make it a strong case for Colby, Kansas as the epicenter of uh, upland bird world. And last question on this train of thought. When you have brought your dogs to all these different places, has there been a particular type of terrain or bird where your dogs have taken more time to figure out than than you would expect
1: well I, I only have one experience you know going to your part of the world hmm. i hunted um minnesota for rough grouse and woodcock and uh this was 20 2013 or 2014 and i i will tell you that that was that was as tough of an experience as a hunter Hmm. on the dogs themselves you know my dogs we hunt rough grouse in in western wyoming um, eastern idaho but hunting hunting rough grouse in that part of the country versus hunting rough grouse you know near the canadian border in minnesota um hugely different the vegetation and, and wading through Trees and and um, I I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in trouble when I got talking to a guy and and he says uh, he says this is your first time hunting rough grouse up here and I said yeah and he goes I said I said well, you, you know you hunted the other day did you have a good day and he goes oh I had a, I, and I and I wish I could do the Minnesota accent <laughs> he, he said I had a great day and I, I said I, I heard nineteen of them I said you you heard nine I heard nineteen of them. I said, well, did, did you see any? He goes, I saw three. Great day, I saw three. I said, did you get a shot? He goes, I shot at one, but I didn't get him. But I had a great day. I heard 19 of them. I knew I was in trouble. Okay. I, a great I, day I, is hearing 19 flushes. I knew I was in trouble. And my poor dogs, they had no clue. Mm. My poor dogs had no clue.
0: I had a similar experience coming to the Northwoods, Bob. And I knew I was in trouble when I showed up. And the guy who was leading the hunting party asked me if I had a compass,
2: mm-hmm. and I looked at him and said,
0: "Why would I need a compass?" Mm. And he said, "You're going to find out." I've got a spare.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's funny when I asked that question, I wasn't even thinking about the area of the you know the Great Lakes North Woods uh, grouse country. I sort of take it for granted because that's what I grew up doing. I would when I asked the question, I was thinking about driving to Mern's country and my dogs had a hard time adapting to canyon hunting they 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 quarter nice I mean they I don't have any issue with them getting out and working back and forth in front of me but they they apparently don't have the mountain goat DNA to quarter up and down hills or at least they didn't they didn't on my first trip so we'll see if that changes over time but but Merne's country was a bit of a challenge uh, with, for my own dogs.
1: I, I think that um, you know my dogs had hunted chucker, mm. and my dogs had, had you know you hunt the sand hills of Nebraska,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know you're up and down. Although it's not you know that physically challenging, except for maybe the duration. There's there is so much cactus and, mm. and um, yeah porcupines and 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 other. You know, other stuff that 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 my dogs got pretty used to that. I will tell you that you go down to, we hunted um, a couple times. Jordan and I hunted down in a place down near Laredo. I mean, I think we were thirty miles from from Mexico, and everything in that country is trying to bite you or step mm-hmm. or poke you. Anything that grows down there will, you know, rip you to where you need stitches. What I, what I did discover is that my dogs were pretty much able to stay underneath that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thought that would be the worst. And it was the worst for me in terms of, you know, ruining clothes and tearing sure. stuff up and, you know, pulling cactus out of your body for, for weeks after the hunt. But, but it really didn't impact my dogs much. Um, mm. They've not... And they hunt a variety of terrain right if you're at 13 or 14,000 feet hunting for ptarmigan in the mountains of colorado um that's way different than the sand hills in nebraska which is different than you know mern's country or or gamble's country um you know hunting desert quail in arizona right so i think my dogs hunt enough different stuff that it really doesn't impact them um but what did impact them was that trip to Minnesota when they, they didn't understand the whole concept of, of where the birds would be or mm. you know, how to find them or yeah, they, it, that was a, that was a tough trip. It, it is
0: a little bit different than, you know, most of the hunting that you do on the great plains, you know, your dogs get trained in this environment to hunt to cover. So they'll get patterned to go to a plum thicket or, you know to a low spot and you know the desert or mountain uh grouse out west isn't terribly different from that there's always an edge or something to run when you're out in the grouse woods and you know the great lakes region it all looks the same so you know I even get confused on where I'm supposed to be going up there my other observation is that I Bob I think to answer your question. Jim's dogs will go wherever Jim does. Mm -hmm. So if Jim is willing to hike up the side of a mountain in Mern's country,
1: Jim's dogs are going to go with him.
2: Hmm. (laughs)
1: Well, I I tell people, my dogs are way better than I deserve. People hmm. will say, oh, do you have good dogs? Well, I'll let other people define whether they're good or not. All I know is that they're better than I deserve because I'm not a very good trainer.
2: Well, I've only hunted with you what do we hunt two days out of three days? I was down there and you, you have excellent, excellent dogs. And, um, they do, as Jordan says, they don't get away from you. They're very in tune with where you are. And, uh, you know, you have hunted with enough people where, you know, you have to spend half the time searching for somebody's dogs that they have no control over. And that's definitely not the case with your pups. They're, They're there to hunt for the birds and hunt in front of you.
0: I have a good story about that. So last winter, Jim and I were hunting together in January, and there was this just epic spot that he got permission of on that was this giant like horseshoe CRP draw. In fact, Bob, when you were out there hunting with Jim, he might've taken you to it. We're walking along this draw and it's really hot and my older dog is running the edge of the field out in the corn because he's too hot and he doesn't want to go on the grass jim's walking along and i see his dog on point and he's above it on the hill but there's this huge clump of blue stem that he can't see the dog behind so i'm like giving him hand signals to get him down to the dog and the dog had been on point for quite a while Jim walks in this big, beautiful rooster gets up and he shoots it. And when he shoots it, it's not very far away. But the way that the bird gets hit, you could just tell something was different. It wasn't like a pillow exploding. Well, his dogs run in there and they're running around and trying to find the bird and not coming up with it. And so he has the one dog that's kind of sticking with him looking. And he he's looking with that dog because he thinks this bird's got to be right here. And the other dog kind of sneaks off and neither of us see where it went, except the last time I saw it, it was going away from Jim backwards and up the hill in the opposite direction. And so he's looking for it, looking for it. And he's kind of getting upset that this other dog is nowhere to be found. And about the time he starts hollering on this dog i see it coming over the top of the hill in the crp with this rooster in its mouth Hmm. and so jim's dogs typically stay with him but if they leave there's good reason for their departure (laughs) yeah
2: they they're an excellent pack of dogs that's for darn sure do you train them all yourself jim
1: i have yes
2: yeah yeah you do a nice job well
1: like i said they're better than i deserve.
2: As we move towards um, closing thoughts, I want to circle back uh, for a moment about Call of the Uplands campaign. and um, To to a lot of people, the idea of being a part of a giant campaign like this is intimidating. Um, Part of the reason for doing a podcast kind of updating where we are and coming at this from a different perspective is you know, there's only so many people that can leave a giant check in a donation box or leave a monster property in, in their will. There's other ways that people can contribute to the uplands that they care so deeply about. A, a question for you both, and we could start with with uh, Jim because you've you've experienced this firsthand. Like, what would you tell somebody that wants to contribute? but maybe doesn't know exactly how to get involved?
1: Well, you know, first of all, the organization is is very well established. So I don't care where you're at, there's a a physical presence of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever in your general area. And not everybody as you said, has the ability from a, a financial standpoint to to participate um, some at any level, <laughs> let alone at a level that, that would have a significant impact. But what what's crazy important and, and I'll use the governor's fund again as an example, what's crazy important is, is support and participation. We've we've raised a significant amount of money in the last you know, 11 years. And you know, we're very, very proud of where that money's gone, but that money wouldn't have been raised if it weren't for the hundreds of volunteers from mm-hmm. Goodland, Kansas, to, to Norton, to Scott City, to Oakley, to Colby, and everywhere in between. If it weren't for the, the hundreds of volunteers in those communities in Northwest Kansas, we wouldn't have accomplished what we've accomplished. If it weren't for the landowners that, that um, save the land, we, we have our hunt the second weekend of the season. And, and a lot of these landowners don't let anybody hunt at opening weekend, which hmm. obviously is a tough deal, right? So if it, if it weren't for the, for the volunteers, if it weren't for the landowners, if it weren't for the people that, that help us set up our banquet, everybody's a volunteer, nobody gets paid. If it weren't for all of those people, playing the role that they play, uh, none of the revenue would have been generated. Hmm. So everybody has the opportunity. Everybody has some talent, right? I, I, I tell Jordan that, that, you know, it's time, talent or treasury. Well, I'm short on funds. I don't have much talent, so I got time. Hmm. Um, everybody has time and everybody can support in, in some fashion. And whether it's a, a significant event or whether it's a small event, maybe it's just a, a an opportunity to get, you know, some youth involved in the sport, right? Everybody has the ability to have an impact. And and so I would I would say that 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 again with the with the, the network that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have. Um, and frankly, if you're not an uplands hunter, right, you should do it for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or you mm-hmm. should do it for the Mule Deer Foundation or Delta Waterfowl. There's some amazing organizations that are out there. So if your if your passion is not upland birds, then by all means, you know I'm not advocating people go um, support other organizations in PF that, that that take care of you guys as families. Uh, but the point is, we all have the ability, even if it's a small way, to have an impact.
2: Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this is about looking at the greater good, no matter what your passion is. If you like walleye, right, like get involved. Um, That's the key. Jordan, what what are your thoughts in this regard?
0: Well, that was really well said, Jim. And I agree with all that. You know, when you think about the call of the uplands as you've stated, Bob, it is kind of this big overarching aggressive vision for the future, but there's lots of different ways that people can answer that call of the uplands, you know, as, as Jim so eloquently stated, you know, get in the game and participate in some way. I mean, it could be as simple as talking to someone every single day, or setting a goal to talk to somebody every single day about pheasants forever and quail forever and why you're a member of mm-hmm. someone who may not have any perception of even what the organization does, just taking the time to share that knowledge and make it relevant to more people across the country, I think is something really simple that everyone can do. You know, obviously we need more people supporting as members, you know, it's only $35 to be a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever. And I was uh, in Shields yesterday looking at ammunition prices and it struck me that (laughs) I I almost have to spend as much on a box of Prairie Storm Mm -hmm. these days as I do for a Pheasants Forever membership. And, you know, you wanna talk about a deal you know that box of shells might not last the opening weekend, but that Pheasants Forever membership is going to make a difference forever. It, it won't and, last you opening
2: weekend. <laughs> no, it won't. It won't. I knew that the, somebody was going to take a swing, and, and Jim got it in there. Uh, all right, as we round out uh, for closing thoughts, um, Jim, what you put a help us put a bow on this? What What do you think about uh, his final thoughts for this episode?
1: Well, it's it's. Uh... You know, it's August. What? August 9th, August tenth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're, we're three weeks away from from the opener. I don't care whether you're a, a dove hunter or whether you're a grouse hunter. September first is kind of like a, it's a holiday, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's been seven months of waiting, or six and a half months <laughs> of waiting. So, I would I would just encourage people to to get out and enjoy the activity. Um, we we've got you know so much going on in this world that's crazy. Yeah, um, I I think it's it's a wonderful opportunity to to embrace and enjoy the outdoors, and and while you're doing it, think about about the fact that that it's a blessing that we can do this, and that um, again, whether it's whether it's time or talent or treasury or funding, however however you look at it, uh, don't don't um, forget the opportunity to give back.
2: Great. Well said. Jordan, can you top it? Well, I'll
0: try. I'd be remiss, Bob, if I didn't give the Call of the Uplands website. So for anyone who's interested in learning more at the call, about Call of the Uplands and pheasants Forever, Quail Forever's aggressive vision for the future, please go to calloftheuplands.org You'll get to read about some great stories of individuals like Jim Millencipher who are answering the call right now and learn more about how you can participate and engage in the campaign going forward. I think probably the way that I think is best to close this Bob is just simply, you know, again, circle back to how we kind of started the conversation and thank Jim. You know, Jim has been a tremendous advocate for wildlife habitat conservation the sport of upland bird hunting and the world needs more jim millen ciphers so find your inner jim millen cipher Mm -hmm. answer the call and try and do what you can when you can with what you have where you are to make a difference for the uplands
2: yeah we talked a fair bit about you know the kansas ringneck classic and it starts with an idea. I mean, the organization started with an idea written in a newspaper article by Dennis Anderson. You know, there's so much that just starts with one concept and a person that believes in a vision and puts in the time and, uh, um, you know, rallies folks around a cause that we all care about. So, Jim, thank you so much for, you know, the Kansas Ringneck Classic, the commitment to the uplands and be a part of call of the uplands. Uh, I know you giggled when Jordan said we need more Jim Mellon ciphers, but uh, there's a lot of truth. We need we need people with with hearts committed to this cause because it brings, you know, whether it's the, uh, you know, the dusty Mexican borderlands of Arizona where we chase three species of quail or you know, the, the mountains where you chase those, those uh, ptarmigan or the dusky grouse in Wyoming or the sagebrush seas that we chase um, sage grouse or, you know, the prairies for pheasants or the savannas for quail. They bring us to some of the most beautiful places in the country and um, it's our fastest disappearing ecosystems on the planet and that's why we exist to help turn that tide. So I guess the the, uh, the key coin term for this episode is be like Jim Mellon cipher. <laughs> might not agree with. That. <laughs> All right guys, thank you very much for uh, listening to this episode. Uh, you can check out the Kansas Ringneck Classic at KansasRingneckclassic.com. And as Jordan mentioned, call the uplands dot org and um, you can find the Call the Uplands information at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org it's right on the homepage and while you're there make sure you either join, renew or upgrade your membership uh, because we need you involved in wildlife habitat conservation thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you To always follow the dog, something good will rise. Thanks, folks.